And uh, as you will find, the more we give, the more we're generous with what God has given us, uh, it's amazing what happens. It comes back and uh, ends up back in our, in our plate and back in our account and back in. And that's not why we give, but that's a part of it. We're in the middle of a series. We're actually close to the end of the series. Um, hopefully at some point we'll finish this series up. Uh, not that I'm getting tired of it, but uh, it's, you know, got to move on. And uh, but we got a few left, and we are in the book of Haggai this morning. Um, the book of Haggai. Some people pronounce it Haggai or something like that. I just pronounce it Haggai. And yeah, it's pretty easy to, um, to say that way. So let's say, say the books of the Bible from Hosea through the, the end of the Old Testament. And uh, see if we can do all those this morning. All right, so we'll start with Hosea. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Good, excellent. Uh, I think by the end of this series, we'll at least have those 12 books of the Bible memorized in order. And we'll know where they're at. Well, no, don't know where they're at, but you know what order they go in at least. And um, so that's good. Haggai pops into the scene and shares a couple quick chapters with us and then kind of disappears. We don't, we don't see him again. We don't find him or hear about him anymore after, after he shares these two chapters with us. Haggai deals with a subject that um, we care, care very much about. In fact, it's uh, most people's favorite subject. It's a, a subject we spend a great deal of our time in life attempting to earn. Haggai's subject is our personal economics, our money. We're going to look at what Haggai told God's people a couple thousand years ago about their money. We will look at it from a historical uh, standpoint, uh, look at the historical value that it had and what it meant to the Israelites when, uh, when God gave it to them. And then we'll take a step back and look at how these principles can and should be applied to our lives today. Um, so far in the Minor Prophets, um, we see God's been sort of, a, sort of an angry God. And um, he's been angry with his children who have been somewhat disobedient. He keeps giving warnings. He keeps telling them over and over again. And we talked about it last week. That he, kept, he keeps repeating himself. Get, Dad keeps telling his kids over and over again. And they keep ignoring it. Last week we saw in Zephaniah where there was a little blip of hope. right? The little perhaps. And Josiah was that perhaps. Josiah was a fresh of breath, a, a breath of fresh air. It was a, he was a time and moment when Israelites were serving an almighty God, their almighty God. Throughout these minor prophets, the Assyrians were, were the Israelites' enemies. And they're the ones that, that came in and sort of gave the Israelites trouble. In fact, the ten tribes to the north were completely wiped out. We call them the, lost, the ten lost tribes. Um, then the Babylonians came in and they rose up and, and even took the southern tribes and along with Jerusalem and laid uh, Jerusalem to waste. And um, this is where the story of Daniel comes in and good old King Nebuchadnezzar um, uh, took Daniel and his, his three friends, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Israelites were kind of spread out and dispersed among the, among the Babylonians. And we can read in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, where, where God told the people to live amongst the Babylonians, to live right in with them and be an influence where they were. Then the Medes and Persians took over and King Cyrus decided to let the people from the various nations go back into their countries, rebuild their towns, rebuild their cities, rebuild their countries, and just continue to be loyal to him, King Cyrus. <coughs> This is where the Old Testament books of 
Ezra and Nehemiah come in. Kids have been learning about Ezra and Nehemiah, haven't they? Yeah. We call these people the remnant. The, the, the few folks that were still in, in God's eyes, obedient to him, but were living amongst the Babylonians. They had been there for 70 years. So think about how long 70 years is. It's a, it's a full start of almost three generations, right? So you see, these people lived in, the, in, in Babylon, in, in their town, in their cities, in their countries for 70 years. Think about the kids. Would the kids have any ties to, to home? They wouldn't. They wouldn't even know what home meant or what home was. They would be completely uh, removed from it. So these people, these, this remnant, those who were willing to pull out of Babylon and go back to Jerusalem and rebuild, we think of them as righteous. But, but if you think about it, those who stayed behind, they were really kind of justified in what they did. I mean, it really kind of, it would have been difficult to even know what home was like. A few things I want us to, know, uh, to notice before we um, jump into the actual passage of Scripture. Uh, these people were godly people. This remnant was a, a godly people. They, they risked leaving behind a life and, and made their way to where God told them they wanted, they, he wanted them to be. These were people deeply devoted to God, those that moved back to uh, Jerusalem and back to the land of Israel. They were, in, in one sense, predisposed to follow God. They had this idea, okay, I'm going to commit my life and give my life to God. Secondly, their economy was, was a total mess. Um, obviously, moving back home from, from Babylon, they didn't have crops, they didn't have herds, they didn't have income, they didn't have any way to sustain life. And so their economy was a complete disaster. Everything was destroyed. Um, they had to really start from scratch. There was no crops in the fields, there was no herds, like I said. And um, these people were definitely living paycheck to paycheck. They didn't know what God wanted. They were trying to serve God, but they just really didn't know what to do. Haggai pulled back the curtain and shared what God wanted in their lives. 25 times in this short two chapters, in different forms of course, is stated, the Lord of heaven's armies says. So Haggai is pulling back the curtain and God is sharing his will for these people's lives. These were good people. This remnant of folks that moved back from Babylon to uh, to Jerusalem. And what's great about this is that once they knew, they immediately obeyed. We see these people in just three weeks' time begin to do exactly what Haggai had shared with them to do. It's amazing. So turn with me to the book of Haggai. We're going to look at, we're going to highlight a few things and, and point out a few things and read, read a little bit of, um, from the book of Haggai. So did everybody find it? Page 934 in my Bible. What number is it? 750. 750. All right. All right. You got a table of contents. God put that table of contents in the front of your Bible. And um, you should be able to find it that way. Um, find the book of Haggai. Short book. Two chapters long. We're going to start in uh, Haggai chapter 1. And I just want to get an understanding of what's going on here. And um, let's just do some reading for just a few minutes. Haggai chapter 1 and starting in verse 1. Read along with me. If you, I'm reading out of NIV if you have a choice. Um, you can follow along word for word um, if you've got the NIV. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to who? To Zerubbabel, son of Shantiel, 
governor, so the governor, and Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. So the high priest and the governor. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come uh, for the Lord's house to be built. Then the Lord of the word of the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. It is a time for you yourselves. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? Highlight, underline, paneled. We'll come back to that. Paneled houses. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Title. You ever watch a movie and you listen for the title? Yeah. There, there it is. Whoop, there it is. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go into... It, Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, to see, but, but see it turned out to be little. What you brought home I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains in ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because... Of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields, and the mountains on the grain, and the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces on men, and on cattle, and on the labor of your hands. I think today's day and age, and we're going to pause it for just a sec. Today's day and age is a very cause oriented, uh, we're a very cause oriented people, right? You come in and you see some, some pictures of uh, some, some starving children, or you, you come across a, a, a ministry that's going on, and, and we're very cause-oriented. We want to we participate. God asks us to take care of the poor, and He asks us to take care of the needy. We're here in this building on purpose to do just that. But get this. Like the people of Haggai's day, sometimes we forget we need to do for God just because He is God. The pendulum has swung so far that most people even think that the church shouldn't even have a building to meet in. Well, why can't you just meet in the park? Anytime we try and give something, give God something worthwhile, a nice place to meet Him, we have this tendency to get real critical. We have this tendency to get real stingy. After all, there's, there's needy people out there. Well, yeah. There are needy people out there. But like the, like the people of Haggai's day, they weren't helping the needy. <laughs> they were paneling their own houses. They had plenty enough to panel their house. You know, I think we go even a little further than that. I remember trying to, uh, trying to get posters to um, stick to the wall. We lived in a trailer house, and they say trailer houses are paper thin. The, you know, the walls in a trailer house are paper thin, in all reality, they, they pretty much are. You stick a tack in one, one side of the wall in, in our room, and then you go on the other side and you stick a tack in the same spot, and you can actually see light through the wall. I mean, it's, it's pretty thin. You, you tap on the wall like this, and things fall off the wall on the other side. It's pretty bad. Uh, we had paneling in our house at, at the trailer house. We go far beyond that in today's day and age. God tells his people, I don't want... 
a little tiny house where, where your house is all pimped out. You know what I mean? If I told you to build me, me personally, something, something nice... And so that, so that I could take pleasure in it and that, so, that, so that I could be honored by it. You would look at me and say like, who do you think you are, right? And you'd be right. <laughs> However, when God says, build my house so I can take pleasure in it and be honored by it. We can't really look up and God, at God and say, well, well, who do you think you are? Because he might look back down and say, I'm God. Who are you? Sometimes we need to build and do things for God just to honor and glorify Him. He's deserving of our absolute best. There's a time and place to do something. Not for ourselves, not for others, but just for the glory and honor of God. The Lord of Heaven's armies. Who, by the way, gave up everything and died for each and every one of us. Jump down to verse 12 of chapter 1. Then the, uh, the governor and the high priest, I'm not going to go through all those names again, and the whole remnant of people, this remnant that we're talking about that moved back to uh, God's land. The message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. What did they do? I skipped the most important word. This whole remnant of people, what did they do? What does it say there? They obeyed the word of the Lord. Verse 13, then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred a spirit in Zerubbabel. He stirred a spirit in the governor. He stirred a spirit in, in the high priest. And he stirred a spirit in the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. On the 24th day of the 6th month of the 2nd year of King Darius. So go back to verse 1. Compare it to verse 15. How many days difference? It's about 3 weeks, isn't it? It's about 3 weeks. From the time we start this till the time they're obeying is a very short time. Very short time. Now let's look at, uh, jump down to uh, verse um, 6 of chapter 2. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and, and the desired of all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. This remnant, this small group of people who gave out of their poverty to rebuild this small temple, it wasn't anything like Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was gigantic and and majestic and huge. This small temple, God says that I will make this small temple have more glory, shine with more glory than the, the temple of old. Do you know why that is? Because this temple is the very temple that Jesus Christ entered. He walked in. He walked on these very tiles. He came and he taught in this very temple. He may have even, well, he, we, we heard he did. He cleared this temple at one point. The glory of this small temple will be greater than that of the first. 
Go back to verse 3 of chapter 2. Think about it. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Some of these young people, or actually some of these old people now, would have probably been alive, maybe youngsters, five, six, seven years old. They may have entered Solomon's temple. They may have seen that big giant temple. And these people are coming back now and rebuilding a a little small temple for God. The glory of this tiny place was going to be greater than the former temple. It's because Jesus Christ would one day walk there. All because the heart of the people. These people are amazing. They came back. They gave up everything they had. Their life in Babylon. And came back and began a new life here. So the principles that we need to apply. Let's go through these. But first I want you to understand... You might say, well, well I, don't have, I don't have the title of the message, How to Patch a Hole in Your Pocket. You might say, well, I don't have a hole in my pocket. Well, I would say you probably don't even know that there's a hole there. I have to tell you something before we get started. The, this, this first principle, something about this first principle, principle two and principle three that we're going to go over in just a few minutes, apply to everyone. You could be a a God-hater, a complete non-believer, and these principles still work. They apply to anyone. Principle number one, however, is a Christian principle. It only applies if you want to walk with God. It only applies if you want God to be a part of your life. Sometimes we get this idea that that we'll be blessed because we we shovel bucketfuls of money. Fools of, of money in God's direction. We expect him to, to repay with, with dump truck loads, right? Haggai's message, message isn't an investment strategy. That's not what it is. This is a way to give very much due honor and respect to our God. God says, put my house before your house. That's the first principle. Put God's house before your house. I don't preach about money very often. I don't preach about giving very often. In fact, it's, it's very rare. And um, if it's in the passage recovery, and I, I tend to, to say something about it, but I, even then I reluctantly talk about it. I know it's part of our Christian walk, but it's uncomfortable at times talking and preaching about difficult stuff like money. But I'm actually ashamed of those feelings because God talks about it very plainly. And especially in this passage, in many others. If God came physically, if he came here, you could see him, you could look at him. He came in and he he was going to do a personal audit, a personal financial audit. It's a mandatory audit of your financials and he wants all of us to give an account of our money. How we're using this particular tool, how, you know, that he has given us. So Tuesday night at 7 o'clock, you know, bring all your financials and state bank statements and your credit card statements, and God wants to have a look-see. He wants to take a look at it, see if we're being a good steward. How many would be comfortable with that? It's a little, it's a little scary, isn't it? It's a little nerve-wracking. This principle of Haggai is this. If you don't want to go to your wallet hoping for 10 bucks and only find 5 if you don't want to go to your wallet hoping for a 20 and only find a 10, if, you, if you're tired of having holes in your pockets, Haggai says, start taking care of God's house first. We find this principle 
many places in the scripture. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 and 10 says, Honor the Lord your God, the Lord with your wealth, and with the best part of everything you produce. Then he will fill your barns with grain, and your vats will overflow with good wine. Honor God first, not with your leftovers. God doesn't receive honor when we give him whatever is left. What happens when we give him the first of what we have? One, we honor him. We give him honor. We say to God, your house is more important than mine. Secondly, we thank him. We're grateful. By giving to him, by bringing him our first fruits, we're grateful to him. And third, we trust him. In the old days, before there was good irrigation and before there was was ways to take care of pests, um, we didn't have guys like David who would come around and, and kill all the pests in the house, right? Didn't have, didn't have locust control. Giving of the first fruits, those first things that came up out of the ground, those first pieces of fruit that showed up on the tree, it was an act of trust to God. Giving of those first fruits was a very trusting move. If God didn't continue to bring moisture, if he didn't keep the bugs away, there wouldn't be a second and a third and a fourth to to sustain life. (laughs) Giving of the first was a trusting move. Haggai is pulling back the curtain and showing us what God is trying to reveal. When you give your first fruits, If you put God's house before yours, when you go to your wallet for a 10, there might be 15 instead of 5. When you go to your purse for a 20, there there might be 25 instead of a 10. God says, I'll patch the hole in your pocket. That's Christian economics. If you are one who wants to be obedient to God's will for your life, putting God's house first is going to be your way of life. If you want to patch that hole in your purse or pocket, put God's house first. If you want to fill that pocket, there's a couple other principles that we can learn. Second, we need to stop pretending. We're going to, be do, we're going to do something very difficult. In fact, something somewhat painful. We'll be made fun of for it. It will be looked down on by others for it. It's an extremely bizarre commitment to live within our means. We have to stop pretending. If you make this commitment, it'll be hard and it'll be embarrassing and some people will roll their eyes at you. Where do you get your ideas of what kind of clothes you should wear, what type of car you should drive, what neighborhoods you should live in, what your house should look like? Where do you get your ideas for that? I think for most of us, we look for other people that are in our line of work. If you're a plumber, well, you look at all the other plumbers. What are they wearing? What are they, what are they driving? What kind of cars do they have? If you're a teacher, you look at other teachers. If you're a dentist, you look at other dentists. If you're a CEO of a large corporation, you find out what to wear and what to drive and what size of house you should own by looking at your, your peers. The problem with this is that a huge percentage of the world is up to their eyeballs in debt. Most live outside their means. They're in debt. Most, <laughs> if, they, if they missed one paycheck, would be going to a lawyer to file bankruptcy. Proverbs 22 and verse 7, it says, Just as the rich rule the poor, so the borrower is servant to the lender. Commit to live within your means. Otherwise, you're a servant. 
And you're not a servant to God. You're not a servant to your family. You're not a servant to your spouse. You're not a servant to anybody that you want to be a servant to. You become a servant to a lender. Commit to live within your means. Proverbs 12 and verse 9 says, Better it to be ordinary and work for a living than act important and starve in the process. Commit to live within your means. Don't fall into the image trap. Proverbs 13 and verse 7, it says, A pretentious, showy life is an empty life. A plain and simple life is a full life. When debt is because I'm trying to be somebody I'm not, it's straight up stupidity. It's just silly. Not all debt is bad. But don't get in debt to keep up with your peers who are headed towards financial failure, not financial freedom. If you're in debt and God calls you into the mission field, could you go? Probably not. If God changed your family situation and you needed to quit your job or take a lower paying job to be a better mom or a better dad, you probably wouldn't be able to because you're in debt. You're no longer working for yourself. You're no longer working for your family. You're no longer working for God. You're working for a lender. They own you. Don't fall in to the trap of having an amazing image. Don't fall into the pleasure trap either. Proverbs 21 and verse 17 it says, Those who love pleasure become poor. Those who love wine and luxury will never be rich. There's nothing wrong with nice things, but stick within your means. We fall in love with pleasure instead of with God. We pretend. We, we, we fake it. We pretend like we have more than we do. I, I call this the, the uh, pretending's unholy trinity. There's three things that I can think of that really we, we do a lot of pretending when it comes to number one, gifts. We try to look richer than we are and attempt to give gifts we can't afford. Think about Christmas. A lot of families are this way. We go way over the top for Christmas to make sure our kids have a good Christmas. We sacrifice our marriage to work our tails off for it because we can't be honest with our kids about probably one of the most important lessons we could ever teach them. We aren't as rich as we would like to be. We can't afford it. Don't fall into pretending when it comes to gifts. The second one I can think of is weddings. Weddings is absolutely... I, I mean, oh, it's just crazy. It's absolutely crazy how much, weddings, how much people spend on weddings. And it's all pretend. You want, to do, you want to do the best, people want to do the best they can, but really they're doing the best they can't because they can't afford it. They can't afford it. You spend all this money to impress people that you don't really even like, right? It's true. I've noticed that the more the wedding has to be perfect, the more the marriage stinks. It's pretty true. And third, we fall into this trap. We pretend when it comes to education. We pretend we want to be better than we are. We spend a, there's a ton of pressure on kids to go to the right college, to go to the right place. And really, it's just, a, it's just a prison sentence of debt. It's not a gift to give your kids the gift of, de- uh, of debt. It's just not a gift. What's crazy is it starts early on. It's kind of like what we talked about last week. It starts very early. We look for the elite educators in the state. We make sure the school that we're in are, are, are the highest test scores in the state. But we need to focus, focus more on 
G-O-D than we do on MVP or GPA. Parents, don't fake it. Don't pretend that you can afford it. Live within your means. And third, if you want to fill that pocket, if you don't want somebody's hand to always be in there pulling your money out, the third one is we need to start saving. We start by taking care of the spiritual side. We start by taking care of God's house first. We patch that hole in our pocket. And then there's that, that constantly someone's hand in your pocket. We need to live within our means so we're not owned by the lender. We need to stop pretending. If you want to be proactive and not let the world choose your life for you, commit to living below your means. Well, that's just going to look funny. Yeah, it might. You might drive an old jalopy instead of that nice, fancy new car. But you know what? When crisis comes in your life or in the lives of those around you, you can help out. You're prepared to help. A fool devours all that he has. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 20, it says, The wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. Solomon's wisdom here says, Live below your means. Don't spend everything you have. Proverbs 13, 22 says, Good people leave an inheritance to their grandchildren, but the sinner's wealth passes to the godly. Proverbs 13, 11 says, Wealth from get-rich-quick schemes quickly disappear. Wealth from hard work grows over time. I've mentioned this before in, in other messages and other times. If you want to be financially free we need to live a 10-10-80 plan. A 10-10-80. Pay God, then pay yourself. The beauty of a full pocket is being able to help others. And if you give to God what he's asking for, if you take care of his house first, you give him 10% of your income, and then you next take 10% and you set that 10% aside to save it, and then you live on that 80%. You won't be sorry you did. Generosity is much more difficult when you're broke. And if you live a 10-10-80 plan, you won't be broke. You'll live within your means. In fact, you'll live underneath your means. You'll be able to start saving and be able to honor God with what you're doing. Put God first. Put his house first. Begin building his house first. And then take care of your own. Stop pretending. And third, start saving. And I can honestly say, Haggai, thanks for that. I needed that. I needed that. I needed to hear that. Thanks, Haggai. We needed that. You want to say it with me? I know it's been really, really, really quiet in this room today. Help me out and Thank Haggai. Thank God for what was written here. Say, thanks, Haggai. We needed that. Thanks, Haggai. We did, didn't we? That refocus about our finances is super important. Let's look to God and word of prayer. God, thank you for the way that you bless, the way that you take care of us, the, the way that you allow us to experience your blessings and experience uh, the, your way of taking such great care of us. God, thank you for... Uh, for opportunities to celebrate with the body of Christ, with, with your church, and um, with it being uh, these theme Sundays and having fun with it. God, thank you so much for the ability we have to enjoy this life and enjoy each other. God, thank you for the, the principles, the, 
the commands that you lay out in your word about our lives, about what affects us, about what, what can make us better people. God, help us to hold on to this and start now. Whatever it is, wherever we are, wherever our financial situation is, God, help us to start now. Go home and, and, and help us to budget so that we can take care of you, so that we can start saving live underneath our means so that we can be a benefit to those that are in need. God, I pray that you'll bless with the courage, the guts to say, I'm sorry, but we can't afford that. God, I pray that you won't allow us to fall into Satan's trap of living a life that is far beyond our means. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.